That's right. We would be ready. I like that. Sweet tea in the pastor's glass. We're in the book of Micah. Y'all open up there. In the book of Micah. What do y'all know about Micah? Anything? Everything? Anybody want to take a stab? Micah. Nobody? Somebody? It's a trickier one, right? Seven chapters. Nothing. I'm glad we're talking about Micah then, y'all. It's good news for us. He was a prophet. That's a start. He, he was a prophet. You're right. You know, that's actually a, a, a very good point to make at the beginning, Sam. He was a prophet because if you look at Micah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. You know, sometimes some people in this day and age, those that we might call critical scholars, uh, those who are not believing in the full inspiration of scripture by God would say, well, what do we really know about Micah? He doesn't seem like the one who's writing all of this book. He's only writing some of it. Uh, and so you're right. He's a prophet of the Lord and he's writing all of the words in what we call now the book of Micah, this prophecy that he has recorded for us. So that's actually something that's very good to know at the beginning. He was a prophet. Anything else? I'll give you all some stuff and then you'll know about him. Oh yeah, that's right. So, so Sam, Sam's nailing on something else that we need to be remembering. Uh, some key events that are happening. Micah finds himself; he's a contemporary of Isaiah, coming on the heels of some of the other ones that we've been talking about. Uh, Hosea, uh, uh, Amos, for instance, Jonah, maybe, but Jonah's kind of—he's a missionary, right? He's going outside of uh, the nations, but. Uh, uh, Micah, who finds himself in Judea this time, you know, we've been up in, in Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, Micah finds himself 30 miles south of Jerusalem. That's where uh, Moresheth is, by the way, 30 miles south of Jerusalem. So he's down here. The word of the Lord comes to him, and it comes to him in a tumultuous time because Assyria, uh, the war machine, is bearing down upon, uh, upon Israel currently. Uh, the first kind of wave of destruction has, is coming right in the beginning of his tenure, and then it's going to be subsequently wiped out. But we, we, that's where we have been, right, for the past couple prophets, if y'all have been with us for any time. What, what's happening now is we're taking one baby step forward because now Assyria, like when we were in Isaiah, is breaching into Judea and is in fact sweeping everything and now at the walls of Jerusalem. At least that will happen near the end of Micah's tenure. Uh, Assyria will get all the way to the end and God will deliver them out of Assyria's hand. In fact, Micah, <clears throat> speaking of that, uh, mentions who will actually seize Jerusalem, which is Babylon. Uh, they are coming next, but we're not there yet. 
we see in Micah the beginnings, just like we saw in Isaiah the beginnings. But Isaiah and Micah, contemporaries together, uh, are prophesying before Babylon. They're prophesying during Assyria. Assyria is bearing down on Israel. They're coming into Judea. And Micah has a word for his people. Anything else? I guess it can just about say I told you so. Yeah, I mean, Sam, you know, you've basically taught the study so far. It's impressive. <laughs> How about, um, you know, that prophecy in uh, Matthew? Uh, it's in chapter 2. Out of you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, will come a ruler. Y'all know about that? It was Christmas time, right? We know that one. That's Micah. Interesting, right? Uh, it's very interesting. The Messiah prophesied a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. Wow, that's cool. Uh, there's another piece, too. Jesus is actually using the book of Micah. Uh, I, I think he's using Micah uh, and a lot of the prophets uh, in a larger way. But we see a direct quote. Uh, you know when those people came up and they said, hey, Jesus. There's a big crowd. And they said, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers, they're outside. They want you. What did he say? Who's my mother and my brother? Right? Uh, in fact, what does he say fully? This is, by the way, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. He's quoting uh, Micah chapter 7, verse 6. I'll just read it to you. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. Uh, now, uh, Micah, just like Jesus, wasn't saying we needed to uh, turn against our family or anything like that. What Micah was saying, what Jesus uh, seizing onto Micah, God's revelation, was saying is that we need to get first things first. God. We need to look to see uh, uh, what God is desirous for us to do. We shouldn't allow our family, if they are going against Scripture, to sway us into heresy, blasphemy, and sin. It's interesting. Micah, uh, a, a book of the Bible that we can sometimes overlook. I, I wasn't surprised when uh, you know, I asked a question like, hey, what's in Micah? He's a prophet. You know, I, I know that. And we know that, right? We hear that name. But uh, there is uh, some wonderful truths to be found here. Uh, one more question. A Bible trivia question. Can anybody quote for me Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7? It's a very important Bible verse. He's talking to Moses. God is. And he's telling Moses something. Uh, Moses, in fact, I think may have been hiding in the cleft of a rock or something like that. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Anybody know it off the top of their head? This is a good one to memorize. If y'all are, uh, are memorizers of Scripture, which we all should be and we all should strive to be, you'll hear this one and you'll probably be able to semi-quote it uh, as I read it. This is verses 6 and 7. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Y'all know that, right? 
Does that sound familiar? That's a great verse. That's in the Old Testament. That's gospel right there. There's another piece to it, though, one that we sometimes like to forget. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How can these things be? How can God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, forgiving to the thousandth generation? That's what the literal Hebrew says there. It says forgiving thousands in our English translation. I think it's a gross mischaracterization. Uh, 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 it's like measuring a foot and saying, ah, it's about three inches. <laughs> no, it's much more. Forgiving to the thousandth generation. It's incredible. But who by no means clears the guilty. How can these things be? The book of Micah is about those two verses. The book of Micah is those two verses expounded. It could be a sermon on those two verses. This is the theme of Micah. You see it on your handout. God holds justice and grace perfectly together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Micah. God, I pray that we can learn something uh, from the prophecy that you gave him. And God, I pray that we can hold fast to it, not only in the first few days to come, but in the many days to come of our lives. Lord, help us to remember who Micah is and what he has said, what you have said through him. And it's all very good news. And Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to see it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we know a tiny bit about Micah. Uh, Micah doesn't give us a lot about himself, but uh, that's nice because Micah's not interested in you knowing him. Micah's interested in you knowing his God. And so he's seeking to reveal that as God is giving him, uh, giving him this word, uh, this prophecy. And so we see this theme that begins to play itself out, and it's recurring. It happens over and over three times. God holds justice and grace perfectly Together, And we're going to get into that, but as usual, we like to do the beginning and the end of the book, right? It helps us as we look to see how we might uh, read these, uh, uh, these pieces of scripture. And when we look at that first piece of the first chapter, and we look at that last part of the last chapter, what begins to reveal itself is all of the middle stuff. And the same is true here. And so let's go to chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And so we can see this first, remember the new remembers, right, on the top of our handy-dandy handouts, version 2.0. This is our kind of first remember, if you will. Remember that humanity is guilty when you read the indictments from God. Remember that humanity is guilty. Uh, what do I mean by, does anyone want to take a stab at what I mean by that? Do you know you're guilty? Did you know that? What does that mean? Does anybody want to speak to that? You're guilty. What if I just walked us? Hey, you're guilty. You're right. You did wrong. We fall short of God's standards. Yeah. <coughs> Sam said it. You're wrong. Larry expounded upon it. We fall short of God's standards. Anybody else? You're guilty. Born into sin. Yeah. Born into sin. Right. Since the fall, you know, Adam. Uh, uh, not born into sin, created perfectly, fell into sin, which leads to us being born into sin, corrupted. By the way, it's Christmas time. This might be a good plug, which is why the Holy Spirit came to marry the Virgin 
No corruption within Jesus can be found, right? Taking on the clothes of sinful flesh. A truly human, but like Adam, perfect from the beginning rather than corrupted. Anything else? You're guilty. Well, that's what God's telling the people through Micah. Really the people of Judea, which is the southern kingdom, but also the people of Samaria. They, by chance, were able to hear his words. You're guilty. You're guilty. That's what he's saying. You're guilty. What does this mean for us? Well, uh, let's read uh, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This sets the stage, okay? The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols. I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute. She gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I'll go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. God tells us. He tells us. You're guilty. You're sinning. You've fallen short of my glory. And for this, I'm going to judge you. That's what he's telling them through Micah. Uh, let's go to one more uh, one more verse, just one though, chapter 3, verse 8. This will kind of help us to, uh, to, to see this point, maybe in a, uh, I hope, a different light. And I hope a light that will not only help us read Micah, but a light that will help us read all, really, of the minor prophets, but also Jesus' words as well. This is chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, we're working on this theme of you're guilty, by the way. This first remember, humanity is guilty. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is Micah speaking of himself. But as for me, I am filled with power and with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. Here it comes. To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, a lot of times in our culture and because of our own human frailty, we don't like to be criticized, right? We don't like to be criticized about the clothes we wear, let alone something much more extreme like sin, right? If I just came up to you and I said, hey, your clothes are looking pretty ratty, man. Uh, I mean, that's pretty offensive. Right? I mean, you know, even that can kind of, whoa, you know, put you on the defense. But uh, when we kind of uh, uh, really blow it up and multiply it with this reality, this is what Micah is saying. He's saying he's filled with the Spirit of God to do what? To declare the transgressions of the people. What are we to do with this? We are to be thankful. 
think about it. This is not my own application, by the way. I dare not steal it. It's from Dale Ralph Davis, a wonderful Old Testament scholar. And this is what he says. We should be thankful because God, the real God, the one true God, God himself is telling us something. God is telling us something. You know, God is under no uh, requirement or need to say anything to humanity. Don't think he is. He's God. We could cease from existence right now, and it wouldn't do a thing to God. But God doesn't will that, and God doesn't want that, because God has revealed something to us. He's revealed the first part of something very important. You are guilty. And for this, judgment is coming. Remember that humanity is guilty when we read the indictments, but we need to be thankful. This, by the way, this judgment narrative, this kind of judgment prophecy, it's certainly in the minor prophets. All right, it's a key theme. It's also in the major prophets. You'll see it in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. By the way, it's also in the majority of Jesus' words as well. You know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, when somebody speaks of that and they're talking about hell. Jesus actually speaks more of condemnation and of hell uh, than almost all of the prophets combined. Uh, It's quite remarkable uh, that Jesus is kind of upping the ante. It's a critical moment in the, in the lives of the people of God. And, and so uh, as we read these things, we shouldn't, um, or we should fight against, maybe is a better word to say, uh, fight against our offense. Because we certainly will be offended before salvation. Unless God has worked a work in our heart. When we hear that we are condemned, it'll be just like I hear my jacket is ratty. I'm going to be offended. Right? It's my gut reaction. But as God works and molds and reveals, and as the word is continually proclaimed, and as we are laid low, and as we realize we are guilty, we become thankful because that's the first step. God is speaking, and I am hearing. That is something to be thankful for. The God of the universe is speaking, and I am hearing. That's a huge part of the gospel, too, by the way. You know, what's the... It's kind of cheesy, but like it's like uh, I'm gonna mess it up because I'm trying. Uh, the bad, you need the bad news first to get the good. Why do you need good news if you don't have the bad news or something like? It's something like that. You know, there's a kind of iterations and variations on it. But you know, why do we need good news at all? Right? It's because there's some bad news. This is this is that moment. Humanity is guilty when we read the indictments. It's a huge part of Micah. It's a huge part of, uh, of a lot of the minor prophets of Jesus' own words uh, of all the Bible. In reality, we are guilty and we are in need of something, of a savior. And that's our second remember because God doesn't leave us there. Even as God is speaking, even as God is bringing indictment against our guiltiness, which by the way, we are guilty. This is God's justice being revealed. He tells us something else. This is the good news. This is the reality. This is what's so great. It's the second remember. God really saves. And he does it through promises and, of course, culmination in Jesus Christ who fulfills those promises. Uh, God really saves. And we need to remember that when we read the promises uh, from God. We'll look, of course, here in Micah. These promises are elsewhere, too, in the Bible. But uh, we'll see them here particularly in Micah. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Let's look at that first. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
God really saves. So we're guilty. I pray that we all acknowledge that. We're guilty. What are we to do now? Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You notice the I wills again? This has come up before in the prophets. It'll come up again. I will. Who's speaking? God is speaking. I will surely assemble all of you. I will gather the remnant. I will set them together like a noisy flock. By the way, noisy flock, it's poetry. It means there's a whole lot of them, right? If you have one sheep, that's ah, kind of annoying. Not too bad. If you have a thousand sheep, that's ah, pretty annoying. Don't put them right under your bedroom window, all right? You know, that, that, that's kind of the poetry that's playing out right there. Uh, the I wills. It's beautiful. But let's keep going. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. By the way, this isn't a minor prophet. These things that we're reading are within uh, this minor prophet known for judgment, right? Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. How can these things be? The Lord is talking about judgment here and then saying, I'm going to bring them back, though. I'm going to grow them into something mightier, into something eternal. How can these things be? I don't understand. Well, that's because chapter 5 comes after chapter 4. If we continue the thought, this is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel. On the cheek, here it comes. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. There's this messianic prophecy built into a prophecy that's also speaking about Assyria, because you see in chapter, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 5, it continues. He shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. And it goes on. This is that um, both and moment. We've come across this before, and I'm telling you, we will come across it again. Who, who's God talking about? Is he talking about deliverance from the Assyrians? Or is he talking about Jesus? He's talking about both. Because God can do that. Because God is God. And so we see here this reality playing out that they will be delivered from the Assyrians at the brink of destruction when they see all hope is lost. God provides. And that in and of itself reveals the much fuller truth that is to come. In the time when they were at a brink of destruction in Jerusalem, God will provide. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
There is a reality that's playing out here where we begin to see how these things can be, how God can hold justice and grace perfectly. But we're not there yet. We need to keep going. There's a culmination of it. Chapter 7, verse 9. How can these things be? Okay, someone is coming. Someone is coming. Chapter 7, verse 9. This is God's, uh, this is Micah speaking of the Lord. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. What is he saying? I'm guilty. That's what he's saying, all right? First part of verse 9, I'm guilty. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Second part of it. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. There's a culmination in Jesus, but this culmination reveals this reality that God himself is holding this perfect reality of justice and grace together. It doesn't seem to make sense until we, until we realize that God is sending his own son. By the way, his own son, uh, uh, John, the gospel writer, tells us uh, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's the just and the justifier. Jesus, perfect, uh, able to meet out justice, but coming to save. Right? That's the gospel, that Jesus Christ is born perfect. He lives this life all for the purpose of dying for his people as a sacrifice in their place. That's how justice is meted out, right? Our, our salvation came at a cost, a severe one, the death of Jesus Christ. Without that death, we would still be under the condemnation of God. That justice had to be met, and it was met in Jesus, which revealed, by the way, God's grace because it was God who sent Jesus and it was Jesus, who is God, by the way, who went willingly to die for us. There's a culmination in Jesus and a, and a reality that is fully revealed as we see these things kind of playing out piece by piece in Micah. These are just a few verses within them, and you'll see all of them in the solid rock verses. But uh, that reality uh, uh, shows itself clearly in culmination in chapter 7, verse 9. We're guilty, is what Micah says. I'll bear the indignation of the Lord because I sinned. Until he, that's God, until God pleads my case. He's the judge and he's the lawyer. Dan, does that work? Can you do that? God can, I guess. Uh, but wouldn't that be ludicrous, right? It, it, when, when, if we were to look at it, it's incredible. But we see it playing out. God is judging and yet God, in his extreme love for his people, is advocating to the point of death for us. Man, that's some good news. Some really good news. God holds justice and grace perfectly together. So uh, we see it here in Micah, this happening. Where did we start? Chapter 1, it's important. Uh, we started in judgment. I'm coming, and I have an indictment against you. You've sinned, and because of that, I am going to judge you in destruction. Where do we end? Chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Notice the difference. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Remember that God really saves when you read these promises. Remember that you're guilty too. But man, where do we finish? We finish with the gospel. God is revealing our guiltiness. God is revealing the way to salvation himself. And by the way, that's where all of our ministries come from. You know, the, the minor prophets are revealing something uh, quite applicable to our day. We always, as a church, are desirous to do things. And that's important. We should want to do things. But if we are doing things, thinking we're going to get something with the Lord, or thinking that that's what we need to do to be saved, if we don't continue in these things, we're going to get in trouble or something like that, we need to be careful because we should desire to do these things after seeing what God has done for us. Uh, God over and over is saying, listen to me. Listen to me. You cannot save yourself. You are guilty already. No matter how much community service you do, you're done. But a better illustration for us might be like a, a prisoner getting out of jail. You know, you're free. You're exonerated. You, uh, uh, someone has paid the penalty of your crimes. You're free. What do they say? I'm a new man. I'm going to start all over from here. I'm going to seek to move forward. I want to do the right things because my old lifestyle, that just wasn't right. I want to move forward well, and I want to help others. That's the reality, but more and more and more because when we speak of these things, we know who paid the price. We know what God did to exonerate us, and because of that, our deep and heartfelt and true desire is to move the ministries forward that others might know about that same reality of the good news of Jesus. This is all within Micah, by the way. This reality, God holds justice and grace perfectly together. It culminates in Jesus Christ, so it's no surprise that we would have a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself here. Uh, God reveals it in so many other ways here too, but that's a great culmination as we even see uh, baby Jesus, right, in this Christmas. That's almost like I planned this uh, as we see him culminating uh, it's beautiful. What do y'all have to say? Any questions before we pray? Did you say when Micah was uh, historically? Yeah, he's, uh, he, I think you might have been in the kitchen, Dan. Micah historically found himself at the end of the 8th century BC, which is the early 700s, which is when Israel's about to be gone, gone. Uh, you know, they get swept twice in the last one. It's kind of utter destruction. So that's happening. And then at the end of Micah's tenure, in all likelihood, is the siege of Jerusalem by Assyria when the Lord slaughters the people and turns them back, uh, saving them, of course, until Babylon would come. He's a contemporary, probably not pals, but a contemporary of Isaiah in, in Judea. He's 30 miles south of Jerusalem. Any questions or thoughts? These people, I mean, we have the 
advantage of, of knowing that Christ, you know, that's right, Christ and, and forgiveness, etc. But these people didn't have that, and so their good works and good behavior is what they believe. Oh, by no means. No, true believers wouldn't believe. Even here in Micah's time, uh, a God-fearing man or woman wouldn't believe that their works saved them. Common misconception for us post uh, Jesus' death, you know, after Jesus. We think, you know, okay, those in the Old Testament, they, that's what they thought. You know, they were certainly more material. They wouldn't have been able to uh, uh, be able to separate their spirituality from their material, uh, materiality, but... Uh, the, the, the thought that if I work hard enough, I could be saved goes actually absolutely against uh, the sacrificial system because they're trying to sacrifice to atone for things that they've done and they just can't do it enough. They've got to do it every day and they're trying and trying and trying and they can't do it. What do we do? They're waiting for that final sacrifice and even then they still can't do it. And so what does God say? You're sinning. You're, you're, you're falling into sin. You know, Judea would have been sacrificing still and God's prophesying to them like this. They, what do we do? We're still in sin. But I will wait. Because why? God will advocate for me. I will save you, is what God is saying. I don't desire your sacrifices. I don't desire your good works. I desire you, is what God keeps telling his people. And we see that in the prophecies here. And so then we see Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity. God himself saying, it's pardoned. I'm the one who forgives you. Uh, that is what the people would believe. All the way back through. Uh, you see it in the patriarchs all the way up. It's a common mis misconception. Easy for us to fall into that. Uh, we certainly have much more revelation, uh, but these people would have confessed capital L-O-R-D. Yahweh saves. Uh, and, and that is, you know what Jesus says, I am, uh, which is the English translation of Yahweh. Never mind. It seems like in the first chapter, he's specifically talking about idolatry. Yeah, yeah. Is that, uh, how can I say that? Is that, uh, is that the same thing as sin? I, I know that it's sin. Right. But is that the same thing as sin? Or I, I know that the, we inherited that sin nature from Adam. That's right. And is idolatry that sin or is it... Is, Idolatry, a specific sin, mm -hmm. because their hearts turned toward the idols, and that's what were was bringing right. the judgments. That's right. And, you know, idolatry is so it's such a uh, swamp of sin. Really, you know, is is that a particular sin? Is that kind of what we would generally say is sin? You know, I think you could probably, depending on what you're talking about say yes to those two, both of those. But, you know, it's like, um, it's like Calvin said, you know, our, our minds and hearts are like idol factories. You know, we keep making idols over and over. And what that means and what Calvin was meaning and what we see here, uh, Sam, this actually goes to what you were talking about. Here's something very material. You know, our idols aren't going to look like a little, uh, uh, a little sex goddess figurine uh, that we, uh, you know, bow down before. That would be, you know, that would be pretty weird even in some like weirder contexts, those that aren't Christians. You know, that, that's just kind of not where we find ourselves in the 21st century. Uh, but here, materially, they, they, that was that, that kind of moment. So you see in Scripture over and over, you're praying to wood that you burn in a fire. Why are you so weird? I mean, that's what God's saying. Uh, this is crazy. Why would you pray to a piece of wood that you burn? 
doesn't make sense, right? Uh, and we see this over and over. But for us, you know, this, these idols, which God is severely condemning, you know, he's talking about high places in Jerusalem. That's where God's temple is. A high place is where those other things would be, worship of nature, <coughs> worship of trees. And, of course, you know, you heard prostitutes come into play there. That would have been something that they would have been entangling themselves with in idolatry. You know, our idols look a lot more like uh, ourselves, our pride, we want to please ourselves. We, whatever you usurp God's place with and place above him, that's an idol. And what does God say? You shall have no gods before my face, no gods before me. First commandment, you know, no well, gods. And so. On, on the political scene, the uh, armies and all, would the southern kingdom have tried to assist Israel in, in, in <coughs> fighting the Assyrians? Yeah. I mean, would, would they involve? Um, I don't know if, if they were involved previously in some things. Sometimes they would join together and it was never looked down, it was never looked down upon in a positive way. This time, I don't think so. I think they were fairly separate. I'm looking at some of my guys who might have some Old Testament uh, chronology. Like the did that. that I mean, you went with the right, but that, and that was a little, you know, uh, yeah, so, but, you know, as far as this event, Sam, I, they were fairly separate. Uh, and, and even if, politically, even if they were to try to ally themselves, it would have meant utter destruction anyway. The Assyrian war machine is like nothing that we can ever even comprehend. Uh, it, you know, when you read about it, uh, it's incredible. Uh, so, you know, Syria, Babylon, it's likewise. You know, we, we try to think about Rome and conceptualize Rome and, you know, Alexander the Great. Uh, but we... We can't understand the destruction that would follow the wakes of these, uh, these massive armies going across the countryside. Uh, it, it would be like all of America burning. Uh, it's just too hard to imagine. We see a forest fire and we're scared and offended. It would be like uh, the entire state of South Carolina is gone. You come home one day and everything is gone. Every house, every tree, everything gone. Uh, you know, that's... It's just hard for us to even imagine. Uh, maybe some of the big war vets, some of the, uh, the old war vets, World War I and World War II, um, I bet probably could feel something. Jeremiah chapter 2, where he talks about do not preach yeah, such things. That's right. Was, um, was, was his ministry to both the northern and the southern kingdom? Because it looks like this is talking about the yeah. impending. That's right. Doom of, the, of, of Israel. Yeah. And uh, anyway. it's, it's a combination. You know, I, I think the words were coming to Judah. I think he was prophesying against Israel and Judah. I think it's, the majority of his audience is in Judea. I think he's in Judea when he's saying these words. But, you know, we, you're talking in chapter 2, you know, these people are saying, hey, we're fine, you know, just be fine, drink your wine, we're good. So don't say these words. You don't know what you're talking about. And, and you know, the... Uh, and we kind of, we see this in uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Her wound is incurable. It's, it has come to Judah. Chapter 1, verse 9. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the sins of Samaria. Uh, he's talking about that, uh, that grossness, that swamp just spreading, you know. And it, of course, Judah already had it, but it was much more particular and obvious uh, in the northern kingdom. They started that way. They started with idols. You know, you're talking about idols, Larry. That's a, 
The northern kingdom was born in idolatry. Let's set up a few golden calves. That's a good idea. You know, uh, what? You know, even the best of intentions, you know, which I think that first king maybe initially had. Still idolatry. Anything Samaria, else? Samaria is in the north. That's right. Yeah, that's right. One of the same, right? That's right. Samaria would be kind of like the capital city yeah. of the north, if you will. Not to be confused with Samaria. Uh, no, it, <laughs> it, it is one of the same. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, when you think about the good Samaritan, you're actually talking about the old northern kingdom, but it, after the exile, so many different um, belief systems got all shoved into the same place by the Babylonians and the Assyrians to a certain extent that it, it became something so warped and heinous. It's like a Frankenstein Christianity walking around. Uh, it's, it's not Christianity at all. But when you look at first, you say, you know, maybe that corpse used to be Christianity. That's what a Samaritan would have been. That's why the Jews got so offended when Jesus said the Samaritan helped. Yeah, who's my neighbor? Uh, you know, that's why he used the Samaritan in that parable. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everything, you know, I mean, everything was just warped and, you know, gone against what the Lord um, uh, had designed. All right. The men have five minutes to get up or Judy is going to get y'all. So let me pray real quick and then... Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Micah. Father, more than that, thank you for your revelation, revealing that you hold justice and grace perfectly together, that you sent your own son, Jesus, for us, that you might mete out your justice on our guiltiness, but you did it on your own son. Jesus even went willingly for us. What love is this? Lord, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus. Help us to remember it, even as those who go to sing, sing about it. Thank you, Father. Be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.